then, witches and beautiful souls, here we are for episode 12. It's absolutely full to the brim with info and facts and stories from the Wiccan Lady all about poisonous plants, history of them being used in the past with the witch trials, and we talk about plants today, you know, where you can find them, how you can grow them, how you can use them. And then we'll do a little Louisa's business at the end because she's going to run a course. We're going to have a go at affiliate funding for this podcast. So if you like the sound of the Wiccan Lady and you fancy doing a course with her or doing the Witch School, which I've done for years with, if you mention that you heard about her through the Bell Witch podcast or from Swales, a friendly green witch, then I will get a little bit of money for the advertisement so that would be really beneficial to me to help me with the costing of making this amazing podcast which I hope you're enjoying in its new little route that we're going doing the whole moot and then me talking and then moot and then me talking feedback's always welcome please 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 subscribe and review and rate me wherever you get your podcasts from and if you would like to be a guest speaker to do a little talk on something that you're passionate about that you could talk about for years and years on a topic to do with anything in paganism or witchcraft or wicca or any kind of witching, magic or mindfulness or complementary therapies, anything at all, I am so open to it. You're welcome to reach out to me on Instagram, the Bell Witch Podcast, which is got underscores between the words, or you can email me on the Bell Witch Podcast at yahoo.com, all one word. Um, I'm really interested in what you've got to say and it'd be so cool to meet you and hear your passions. Okay, so a little bit of content warning. We briefly mentioned stuff that happened to the witches who got in trouble for poisoning on purpose or by accident and that's a bit grim to hear. Just the whole witch trials thing again is pretty sad is it a bit sort of mind-blowing that it even happened but I don't feel right as I always say not giving out a trigger warning before you get your ears on it right everybody welcome back to the Bell Witch podcast this is episode 12 Woo! here I am and it's a very special one which I'm going to lovingly refer to as a moot loot because everybody who comes on is a treasure and shares treasure with me so it's like a moot loot I quite like that <laughs> Thought it was really witty at the time, but maybe not. <laughs> Might sound too much like Fruit Loops. We'll run with it, see how it goes. Anyway, enough of all that jazz. With me tonight, I have a very special witch and a really good friend of mine, and also my mentor who I learned so much stuff about being a witch and being a Wiccan from, my good friend Louise Bloomer, aka the Wiccan Lady of Leeds. Hello, Louise. Hi, Swales. Welcome, welcome. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really excited as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your business. Okay, so I started my business about uh, 20 years ago. So I had a slightly different name then because it wasn't necessarily that safe to be known as the local witch. So even though all the laws had been changed in the 50s, it didn't make much difference to the attitude of a lot of people. So I actually used to sell crystals and do little mini therapies at the shows. And then about 10 years ago, I thought, do you know what? I don't actually care what other people think. If they've got an issue, that's their problem. It's not mine. And why shouldn't I be my authentic self? So I changed the company name 
so that it include something that was more obviously witchcraft based. And then I stopped selling crystals and started selling all my little witchcrafty bits. And it was fairly stressful in the beginning, quite a lot of negativity from people. But as the years have gone on, that has totally changed. And now I am so busy. And I think that is perfect because it just shows that complete change in people's ethos, the way people feel about where they're going in life. And it's been absolutely brilliant to see that there are so many people coming on board with any form of paganism. So it doesn't have to just be witchcraft, but people that are thinking more about the planet, thinking more about animals and about people. And um, yeah, absolutely loving it. As they say, living my best life at this moment in time, Swales. Yeah, you're witching it. I am. It's awesome. <laughs> what, what were you called before then? So I was called Violet's Holistics. Ah, I see. Previously. So, um, which was completely relating to my little holistic business that I had going on. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's, uh, that's cool. Because I found Louise in 2019, was it? Yeah, it was. Um, when I had my, oh my God, I need to change my life moment. And I just did a quick Google, you know, like witchcrafting leads. And I think you were number three on the Google list. And I had a look at your website and home behold, you were like on the road as I was looking at you. I think you were at Harrogate at the Gem Festival. And I live so close to it. I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, she's there. I should totally get my ass in the car and go see her. And I remember being a bit nervous, shining your stall, waiting a while, going like, I should talk to her, I should talk, I should talk to her. And then that's when you told me about the witchy school, which was starting that September. So that must have been early, I don't know, June time, perhaps. Maybe I, so, yeah, about June, July time, yeah. It all just came together so quick. That was my introduction into our witchcraft apart from the book I read which was the very very first introduction which was that Lisa Lister witch which people tell me isn't the greatest book to read and get into but it was enough for me at the time. I do have a copy of that book I think I only read to about page six but I must try and persevere with it. It is very um, aggressive it's an aggressive book but at the time it just spoke to me I was shouting at the pages going yes yes I feel like this yes. Anyway so for our moot loop, <laughs> yep. what are you uh, what you're bringing? So I am going to talk about poisonous plants. So those of you that know something about me know that my um, pagany thing, apart from being a witch, is um, herbalism. So I've been a, a herbalist for a few years and I do lots of stuff around healing and spell casting, including my herbs got about 170 jars of herbs and plants at home and um, work with anything up to about 260 different plants but I thought people can find out stuff about ordinary plants so easily so let's shake it up a bit and have a look at the poisonous plants which hopefully most people are avoiding if they don't know what they're doing but you can still incorporate them into your life um, just obviously not if you are a kitchen witch because drinking them or eating them is probably not a good thing. But I thought there's lots of other things you can do with them. And I might even throw in a couple of little stories about witches who have used poisonous herbs to actually poisonous people. So, Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
smell the Hedgewitch side than the Wiccan side. Exactly. So, yeah, let's not forget that not everybody is living by the rule of causing harm to no, to none. You yeah. know, there are people out there that really are not bothered about that, don't believe in karma, don't believe in the rule of three. So we're going to have a look at some of those people tonight as well. Oh, my God, well, scary. It's all just a bunch of hocus pocus. <laughs> all right, well, without further ado, let's uh, dive in. Okay, so I thought a really good place to start would be to consider what the dictionary meaning is of somebody who poisons somebody else. So there is the obvious, lots of people poison people because they want to murder them or for whatever case, um, but actual dictionary meaning around people who are classed as witches that want to murder people through poisoning is very different. So the actual name for it is um, Venificum and it was so renowned that they actually had a name for male witch poisoners and female witch poisoners. So you were a Venificus if you were a male witch and you were a Venificar if you were a female witch. So for it to have its own little place in the original dictionary shows that there was obviously quite a few people doing it, unfortunately. But the actual art of poisoning people through witchcraft goes back much further than the first ever dictionary. And it really goes back to when people realised what plants could do. So they realised that anything within the Selenius gene was capable of not only poisoning and even killing people, but also had actually really great powers as well, because those are the plants that are used as hallucinogenics within shamanism. So as long as the person knows what they're doing with them, there isn't really an issue. And many poisonous plants are used in minute quantities in the medication that we take from the doctors currently. So a really toxic plant that we'll talk about in a minute is actually used as a treatment for children with colic. It's used in a treatment for Parkinson's disease. So it's only really if you don't know what you're doing with it that it is becomes really harmful. So in reality, if we go back olden times, the witch or the village crone, the healer, whatever you wanted to call the person, um, whether it be a, a female or a male, generally was quite feared. And that was because they had such a huge knowledge of all the plants that were growing in the areas that they lived. So if the crops didn't do particularly well, they knew what berries could be used to provide nourishment for people. But in the same respect, they also knew what herbs could be used if somebody wanted a spell to have somebody popped off who they'd fallen out with. So they tended to be quite feared but also very respected within their communities. And that made no difference whether they were just a village elder, classed as a witch or, or a shaman. So all of those categories really all blended into each other. We realised as time was going by that as these people became more and more prominent, that people like physicians were finding it somewhat annoying because people couldn't a lot of people couldn't afford to go to the local physician that cost quite a bit of money but most people could afford to go to the old crone or the village witch because she might only want a bag of dried lavender or a bread loaf or a cake or something in exchange for her wares um, whereas the physician was looking for hard cash 
And for a lot of people, they just didn't have the hard cash. So that's when we start seeing people going around saying, I think this person's a witch. What is the government going to do about it? I think this person should be arrested. And in some of the cases where the local crone has made concoctions for people and the person's died, the physicians have said, well, obviously she's murdered this person. In a lot of those cases, the physicians actually couldn't do anything for the person either. So it was nothing to do with the fact that the old crone wanted rid of the person. They just weren't savable. But because they were feared, people didn't really want to believe that or didn't understand it. And that's why we see so many people being tried for witchcraft, being um, tried as murderers and poisoners. A lot of it was just to do with the fact that generally most witches were quite poor. Um, and the people that were ensuring they were tried had much more money. Um, and as we know, even today, money speaks, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Picking on the, the poor people can't stick up for themselves, can they? Exactly. They've got no funds. That's it. So, um, yeah, the the plants were being used for all sorts of things. So um, things like astral travel for people who wanted to go into trance work and deep meditation. So more looking at your sort of shamanic journeys. But it was really all sorts of people that were using these plants. And if you consider that years and years ago, the local barber, so whoever you went to to have your beard trimmed and your, your hair cut, uh, was actually your local dentist as well. So he was pulling out teeth that were rotten or you know, doing work that was probably going to cause quite a bit of pain because they didn't have all the amazing things they've got at the dentist nowadays. So making a potion and a lotion that you could then stick your pads into. So you'd soak the pads and then put them over your client's mouth. Um, and that would either cause them to go into a meditative state or relax the body enough so that it wasn't as stressful when you were ripping out this poor person's painful teeth. I mean, we know, looking back in history, that people were actually having arms and legs amputated, you know, where they'd been damaged in accidents, where they worked or when they were at war. And there wasn't the things that we've got now. So certainly nobody was being knocked out with gas and air or put to sleep under, you know, the, the ways that we are now when, we, when we're taken into hospital for an operation. So all these poisonous plants played a part somewhere and I'm sure at the time people were very were very happy for it they were pleased to be knocked out uh, or temporarily paralyzed if they were about to have a leg chopped off you know so I know I'd have been happy for somebody to make me a concoction if I'd have been in that situation so it wasn't all bad we call them poisonous plants but it's not necessarily that they're being made into pastes or um, lotions and potions or herbal teas or whatever for, for a negative reason on most occasions it was actually so that it could be of benefit to somebody who was in pain so I suppose if we look back and we look at the sort of um, things that were going on even all the way back to 925 AD people who were being accused of witchcraft or of poisoning somebody the penalty um, for that was was death. In 1034, there is a recorded case of a woman who killed her husband through poisoning. Um, and it is reported that he, he wasn't a very nice person. Um, 
and used to beat her on a regular basis. So she decided that she would poison him. She'd had enough and she was actually killed at the stake. Even though when she was taken to court, her um, and it, it was read out that she was going to be killed at the stake, it was actually classed as petty treason what she'd done. So for petty treason, I think being killed at the stake was quite a, a big thing, really. A bit intense, that. Exactly. So nowadays, she'd have probably got a little slap on the wrist and told not to do it again within the next 18 months, otherwise there'd be trouble. And then in 1329, there is a really interesting story about a lady called Petronilla de Meath. And she was actually um, a maid of a lady called Alice Kiteller. So she was a, a lady as in a dame, not just a lady as in female. So Alice Kiteller was the first witch to be sentenced to death in Ireland. But she had quite a lot of money. So actually she was never sentenced to death because she fled Ireland, came to London and there was no record of her after that. So some people think that she probably fled England not long after and went over to Flanders, but nobody's really sure. So Alice Kiteller found herself a nice, rich husband. He'd been married before and he had two children and he needed somebody to help him look after the children. And so Alice befriended him and the kids, married him, decided that she didn't really like him very much and what she would do is she would slowly poison him with herbs out of the garden. So she did that. The guy unfortunately died a very slow and painful death. But in 1324, there was no way of actually telling how the person had, had died properly. So that was that. A few years later, she found herself another very rich gentleman. And he also had a couple of kids. And so she married him and did the exact same thing. So she would go into mourning and she'd be, oh, I don't know what it is. I'm having such bad luck. My husband's keep dying and then they're leaving me with all these children. And she wasn't particularly a very good mum to all these stepchildren. And eventually she found a third husband, but his children were much older. So they were able to fend for themselves. And they realised that their dad was becoming quite ill. They looked into Alice's background, realised that two of her previous husbands had both died of very similar symptoms and they went to the police. So the police said that they would investigate. One of the people that worked at the police station knew Alice and tipped to the wink and said the police are going to come round and so she, she fled the country. So the police did come round, said to the maid, Petronilla, who opened the door, can we speak to Lady um, Kytella? And she said, she's gone out for the day. Um, and so they barged the way in and went up to her bedroom and they found witchcraft items in her wardrobe and different lotions and potions and also jars of herbs that they believed to be extremely toxic that would cause death to people. So they looked they looked for Alice for some time, couldn't find her, sent word over to England, the police couldn't find her either. So she was just one solitary person, presumably living in London, there was a lot of people in London, and so she was never found. And the unfortunate thing was that because she was never found, they actually flogged and then burnt at the stake Petronilla who was her maid, as a means of saying to other people in Ireland who might have been thinking about doing stuff with witchcraft that, um, you know, we're not going to let this go. 
So we might not be able to find Alice, but we'll make sure that the maid who must have known what was going on pays the price in Alice's place. I was saying, I feel like I know that story. <laughs> yeah, you may well do. Is I mean, it... it's, very, it's very famous because she was the first ever person to be accused of witchcraft in Ireland. Ah, so, okay. It's not so, a film yeah. or anything, is it? It feels like it should be a film. <laughs> it, does, well, it does. Maybe that's maybe that's something, a plan for us for next year, Emma. Maybe <laughs> we, we could make that story into a film. Stage production. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I, I feel very sorry for Petronilla because, you know, even if she did know, um, Alice was her boss and there wouldn't have been much she could do about it. So the fact that the poor woman was, was flogged and then burnt at the stake is... Um, Seems a little bit harsh. If we move on a few years to 1394, a woman who was thought to be a witch was burnt alive. So she had supposedly killed a patient that she was treating. But again, a physician had actually looked at the patient and said, there's nothing we can do for you. Um, We're unable to resolve your issues, your past treatment and sent the patient on their way. And so in panic, they'd gone to this lady who was the the village crone and said, is there anything you can do? She tried to treat her and um, the, the person had unfortunately died. And so nothing happened to the physician that had turned her away, but everybody jumped on the bandwagon and said yes this lady's a witch something must be done and so she she was burned alive and then in 1531 there is a list of numerous women who were actually tried for witchcraft and all of which were actually boiled alive in big vats of of water oh my god Um, basically just for practicing as wise women so they'll have been the local midwives and healers and that is just seems such a, a horrific oh it's horrible it's so grim isn't it yeah and then in 1652 they upped the stakes a little bit because another woman who was considered a wise woman in one of the village villages um, was accused of killing her husband by poison although again there was absolutely no proof that that is what had happened and she was actually burned alive in one of the big vats but they'd actually filled it with hot tar instead of water so again that will have been an excruciating um, way to die for something that hadn't even actually been proved so all of this was going on and yet at the exact same time in 1520 there was a, a very famous physician called um, Johann uh, Weyer, and he killed endless amounts of people with poisons, but then went on to become the court doctor for the Duke of Cleves because he was considered to be highly sought after. And so the Duke of Cleves was desperate to have him um, in his court. So you can see there was very different things going on for the, the women than there were for the most so sad isn't it but times are changing thank god which is a really good thing um healing from the witch wounds exactly i've just i've just put that book into my stock in my shop you know healing the witch wound so one of my students has just read it and said it's absolutely absolutely phenomenal read so I'm going to withdraw one of them out of my stock and put it mm. in my bookcase instead. It's on my list. It's on my list. It can yeah. go on the massive bedside table mountain of books, which I currently have. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
think I've got about nine books in my little pile that's getting bigger and bigger that I'm trying to get through as quickly as I can. Is that just a witch thing or is it just like a 21st century thing? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's a witch thing because every single one of the books in my little pile are all witch related. Mm-hmm. There's like yeah. no or, there's no ordinary other type books. They're just all they've all got witchy titles. So yeah, all these poor people have um, have been you know murdered or sent to prison and actually died in prison because you know we know prison probably isn't that brilliant now, but centuries ago it, it was far worse. Um, and often they were very lucky if they were even fed. So it's quite sad when you sort of research the amount of people that were killed for actually doing nothing more than trying to help the people in the villages where they lived. It's very sad. So yeah, there's all sorts of different recipes, remedies, concoctions that people have come up with over the years. Obviously, plants are nature's remedy and There isn't really a plant about that doesn't have something that it can do for you if you use it in the correct quantities. So, you know, if we look at just dandelion and nettle, a lot of people consider to be weeds. Between those two plants, they cover every single vitamin, every single mineral that your body requires. They do so many things to help improve your health and ailments that you already have. And the majority of plants also tap into that so even the ones that are poisonous can have a positive effect on the body if the person that is using them knows what they're doing with them you know microdosing and um, homeopathy and stuff are all becoming much more you know mainstream than they've ever been before and these are people who obviously have have trained for, for years and years to be able to microdose things So I don't suggest that, you know, somebody who just grows a few weeds in the garden starts pulling them up and making their own uh, (laughs) libations and stuff because anything could happen. If you know what you're doing, you'll be fine. You know, if you think things like really small doses of opium and mandrake and henbane, even hemlock were used to numb pain during surgery thousands and thousands of years ago before the people doing the surgery had any experience of what these plants were actually made up of. You know, so to think that we consider people from centuries ago to have not been that bright, a lot of them had no proper schooling, had no proper education because they couldn't afford it. But if they were into the plants, they soon learned what all the properties were. I imagine a few people did die along the way yeah, while, they were, while they were practicing, but you know, Tri- trial and error. <laughs> Oops, exactly. I just killed someone. Exactly, it's something that, in one way or another, we've all done, haven't we? We've all done trial and error. I was going to say we're all like, done killing someone. Say <laughs> <laughs> what? Maybe not quite that extreme. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what what used to happen? Things like your your opium out of the poppies, your mandrakes, henbanes and hemlocks, which we know can all kill you very easily. They were actually mixed in very exact doses into a liquid. So they were brewed in water and then the water was used to soak sponges in. The sponges were then used as part of operations. So um, they would get the, the patient to actually sniff the sponges and then that would temporarily knock them out 
they'd do whatever it was they needed to do. So remove whichever part of the body it was. And then the person would slowly come around and the worst of it would have happened. How intelligent that all these centuries back, people realised that you could do that with plants. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. So there was loads and loads of other types of things that were being used. So tormental seeds they used to use to kill off parasites. So specifically like parasitic worms that they might find in people's guts during the 10th century. So they'd give them the tormental seeds and then that would actually stop the diarrhea and fever because generally all those, you know, back in the 10th century, having parasitic worms was a killer. So somebody somewhere, some village crone somewhere realised that that actually was a cure. And it goes back to that saying of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So the same with homeopathy. People can have allergic reactions to things, but you give it in a very small quantity. Your body then starts to recognise that. So when you get it in a bigger dose in your body, your body's actually able to cope with it a lot better. So this exactly the same way as vaccines work when, when we're, we're babies. So dog's mercury that was could actually paralyse and kill you was used mixed with salt as a hangover cure throughout the 11th century. That's a bit of a strange one because dog's mercury was extremely toxic. So mixing it with salt meant that you vomited profusely for about two hours. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sort of thinking I'd rather have the hangover. Yeah. It's just you know. like a purging. It's just purging the alcohol out of you. Exactly. I think even even if I'd have tried it once thinking, oh, this is a great mini cure, I'd have soon realised that if I was going to continue drinking, I'd have just taken the hangover every time, I think. But lots of people did it. You know, wise women were making good money or good exchanges of things through doing their their hangover cure of dog's mercury um did it have like a nickname like a slang term for that it feels I'm, like it should have yeah i'm sure it would have and i, yeah. I don't actually know what it is uh, interesting. I, I'm, I'm sure it would have because i can't imagine that you know when people went to see the the local crone she went yeah i've got this amazing thing so you know dog's mercury that kills people um, <laughs> gonna make you a little cup of tea out of that and then drink it and you'll be violently sick for two hours but whoa give it a couple of days you'll feel amazing maybe it's um, air of the dog maybe that's where it came from Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe. I'm going to have to look that up now, Emma. Have a bit of air at dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we know between the 10th and the 13th century that um, there was a lot of people going to see the local crone regarding childbirth and wanting to induce a termination because they'd maybe, I don't know, found an amazing young man and then realised that he actually didn't want to cart them off and marry them they um, weren't that amazing exactly but he'd <laughs> done he'd done the dascadilly deed and the poor woman found herself pregnant they would use um ergo fungus and juniper berry seeds and mix them together and that actually brought on an early labor so basically it was a blend for abortions between the 10th and the 13th century so it was used for quite a long time and during that time a lot of village wise women were were condemned 
because we were just coming into those times when people really thought, first of all, you shouldn't be having sex with people if you weren't married. And secondly, that abortion was a real was a real sin. So there was a lot of comeback for people if they if it was proven that they were actually making these concoctions for that. So, yeah, all sorts of people were were into it. It wasn't just like the village crone. So the Emperor Nero's own physician Andromachus he used to make different lotions and potions out of poisonous plants so that was way back in the first century Uh, he was doing that he had a, a formula that included about 70 different ingredients and within that there was opium there was lots of really good things as well so it had lavender in it and it was a honey base and it had cinnamon in it and iris rose petals so there was lots of lovely things but it also had your more deadly type plants in it and he was doing absolutely amazing things with that in fact it was him that made honey a really desired thing everybody wanted it because he was saying that honey's got so many healing properties which it has and if you add all these different things into it and come to me and buy my little concoction you will have the best health and you will live longer and people did because honey actually is really really good for you so he got away with it with the little poisonous bits in it what he was making his concoction actually continued right the way up until the the 12th century that you know that was a really long time for one particular concoction to to remain you know wanted by people so yeah i'm sure he made lots and lots of money from that it helped that he would have dude i think well, yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody <laughs> nobody was going to argue with Emperor Nero's physician, were they? Oh, no. Um, well, not not argue with him and live to tell the tale in any case. <laughs> yeah. Off with their head. Exactly. Yeah, that continued till about the 12th century. Then there was some tweaks made to it in the 12th century. But it actually wasn't until the 18th century where they completely changed the recipe. They took honey out because honey was starting to lose its luster as a treatment and they replaced it with golden syrup. Not really sure what the healing properties of golden syrup are. I imagine not that many. (laughs) Just rots your teeth. So, you know, but it was a lot cheaper than than honey was. So I think that is probably why they decided they would change the recipe so drastically. But yeah, all sorts of things. So even atropine. Uh, Atropine was being used um, as a component in the deadly nightshade family. So for instance, you find atropine in mandrake. So a lot of us like even now use mandrake in spell casting and stuff. um, And atropine is a part of that. It can be used to treat the side effects of there are some fertilizers that are very dangerous and so it can treat the actual side effects of that and anyone who's ever been in the forces will know um, that the military use atropine to counterbalance different chemical nerve agents so again it's got a it's like a double-sided blade it can be dangerous but in the right hands it's also a cure not all poisonous plants have to um be a worry to people you just have to know what you're doing with them that is all so is there any you use today like is there um, any poisonous ones that are quite favored <laughs> so i use mandrake a lot um and if you have the right facilities you can grow your own mandrake um in the uk you just have to know what you're doing so i grow mine in my polytunnel i find it doesn't like really cold weather 
and unfortunately the further up north you come by the time you've got to Leeds it's pretty cold nearly all the time so I, I grow mine inside my polytunnel and that seems to work quite well and obviously that is classed within the poisonous plants family but um, I wouldn't necessarily put mandrake into a cup of tea or put it in my chicken soup or whatever but there's lots of other things herbal charm bags inside poppets that I'm making for different things that you can use it for one of the main components of my flying oil that I make and, and sell. So it's fine to to rub on your skin. It's just actually consuming it in large quantities that's the problem. I have some deadly nightshade in a, a little jar on the, the top of my cabinet. So it's not really in grabbing reach of anybody. You have to stand on a chair to get it and it's got a big red label on it. So people know that it's it's dangerous if they don't know what they're doing with it. But other than that, I tend not to use that many dangerous type things but then they're all most of them are growing in the UK so mm, if I needed yeah. it I could go out you know you could wander around the meadows or whatever I went for a walk in the local woods literally quarter of a mile up the road from here and came across two extremely poisonous plants growing right next to each other um, just a few weeks ago so if I needed something poisonous for a specific thing I was doing you can go and get it fresh growing around the majority of the UK. Um, so I tend not to have it stored in jars, just in case. It's crazy just how common they are around here, isn't it? Just the other week, there were a flower growing in my lawn and it were new and I were like, oh, that's a pretty flower. Maybe I can use it in some witchcraft. And I tried to identify and it turned out it was ragweed, is it? The yellow, yep. the, like gorgeous little yellow daisy type really tall that come in everywhere they can grow anywhere and then you know as soon as I googled it it was all like these are really poisonous don't touch them chop them down because they spread like wildfire they'll take over your garden and and it just it, everything I researched was really negative about it and I was a bit like oh you know I was kind of thinking I could use this but anyway I cut them all down bees love them the bees love them yeah they do you know Which, and just yeah. just because they're poisonous to us doesn't mean that they're not fantastic for the bees and the butterflies you know so I suppose the biggest issue is for people that have got young children or the type of child when you say mummy doesn't want you to touch that that they go smiling at you and rub their hands all over it yeah um, good <laughs> yeah if you've got those sorts of kids or little kids that just would go over because it, it was a nice bright yellow flower and yeah. want to pick it and sniff it that you need to be far more careful but if you don't have children at home or your kids are older and you can say that's poisonous, keep away from it, you know, then why not have them growing in your garden for the bees and the butterflies to feed themselves? Yeah, um, it's like foxglove in it. That's a yeah, I exactly. mean, the obvious one. That's I mean, I had fo I put foxglove in before I had kids, I didn't realise. I, I guess it's it's if you eat lots of it, that's when it's gonna make you ill, isn't it? So it depends what the plant is. So some plants are highly toxic but they won't actually kill you. So if you look at things like giant hogweed that just grows in meadowland all over the country, it was brought to the UK for the big estate houses, so like Harewood House and places like that, who had huge gardens and wanted them to look beautiful because they grow very big, so they were ideal for filling space. So I wouldn't go out of my way to eat it. It's not actually going to kill you because of the toxins in it. But what it does is it releases tiny little um, acidic spines 
and they create um, horrific blisters and swelling. It takes months for the blisters to actually clear up. Generally, you need to have steroid treatment as well. But even after it's cleared up, your skin is still infected for years after. So every time, if, for instance, you blistered your face um, because you'd been smelling the plant, every time you went out and it was a nice hot sunny day, you would still get the pain in that spot on your face, even though the blisters wouldn't reoccur. And that can continue for years and years. You know, it, it's excruciating for an adult. I know I've had an encounter with giant hogweed. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it um, alters your DNA, doesn't it? I heard yes. this has been on the news a lot recently, I think, because people are finding out just how bad they are. And it changes the way you your body reacts to the sun or something. It does indeed. And that's like yep. the UV rays burn more. Yep. And when were it brought over, though? Was it I mean, Victorian? Sounds yeah. like a Victorian thing, does that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And And that's what it was. The big stately homes wanted to fill out their beautiful gardens. The gardens were all being landscaped. And it was a, one of the very many plants that grew quite tall, so you could see it from your windows a long way away when you were in your little manor house or not so little manor house. And so it was an ideal plant, which is great, but it didn't remain within them. So you get a few gusts of wind during the, the autumn and the seeds are then carried off all over. And now giant hogweed just grows all over. And the unfortunate thing is that it looks very much like a lot of other plants. So it's very tall with a green stem and it has a, a white sort of umbrella of flowers on the top of it and there are lots of other plants that also look like that so most people know what cow parsley looks like and giant hogweed looks very similar but so also does yarrow and yarrow we can uh, we can put in tea it has really good medicinal qualities so it's just making sure if you are going to go out and start picking things that you know exactly what it is that you're looking for, you know, before you do that. Because the last thing you want to do is start eating a piece of giant hogweed. The needles are then released into your mouth and your throat. Your throat starts to swell up. And then the next thing you're finding it really difficult to breathe. So worst case scenario. But I mean, even things like mistletoe, mistletoe berries are, are highly toxic. So they, they are fatal to children. Cats and dogs, they will kill cats and dogs if they eat them. Generally, cats and dogs tend to be much more intelligent than human beings. If they know it's toxic, they tend to steer clear of it. But even adults, it can cause excruciating digestive issues, you know, severe vomiting. You know, a mistletoe is something that lots and lots, thousands of people every year bring into their home at Christmas. Obviously, not everybody realises that it's toxic. So the, the tremotolces that I was talking about before, they actually come off a plant that's called white snake root. And that uh, that grows in, in fields and meadows that haven't been um, ploughed over. And you, you will sometimes find where it's been growing in a field and the farmer hasn't realised, if a cows are quite drawn towards it, but it then kills the cow. If we were to drink the milk from that cow or to eat the meat... It is so potent that it would still kill us just by drinking the milk of a cow that had eaten some. And all the parts of it, it's not just the seeds, it's all the parts of that plant. And then foxgloves. Everybody's got foxgloves growing in the garden, haven't they? They're beautiful and they smell gorgeous. But again, the leaves are highly toxic. If you were to eat a foxglove leaf, it can give you a very irregular heartbeat and pulse. So if you already had an issue with your heart, 
that would be fatal. But even if you didn't have an issue with your heart, you'd probably still have to go to hospital to be stabilised. Other things like um, Jack in the Pulpit, which is a flower that lots of people used to have in their gardens, but I don't think it's as common now. That is like giant hogweed in as much as it contains very small needle-like crystals of calcium oxalate and that causes intense irritation. So if you were if you were to pick the jack in the pulpit and then not wash your hands and then lick your fingers, um, it caused severe burning to your mouth and your tongue and that would swell up and then that causes obviously issues with your breathing. So I'm just Googling it now because I, I couldn't imagine it, but it's quite a exotic looking plant. It and is. It's got yeah. like a hood over a cup. Yeah. It, so it looks a little bit like an orchid, like an ugly orchid. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. So they often, they're the end of it, the sort of hooky bit is often quite a bright yellow and the bit nearest to the stem is often like a sort of dark burgundy-ish colour. But I'm sure you can probably get them in other colours as well because there's so many hybrids of plants now. But they, they were sort of the original colours. I think they're really um, ugly. <laughs> I was going to say it. Yeah, they're, they're really ugly. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're not my, my cup of tea. I wouldn't particularly want them in my garden. But belladonna or banewort, as it used to be called, lots of people like to have that. That's a nice looking plant and that causes severe intestinal pain and death in a oh lot of God. people. And yet it's also used as a cure for Parkinson's. It's used as a cure for irritable bowel syndrome. It's used in travel sickness tablets. So it's going back to this thing of what doesn't kill you can cure you if it's in the right hands. But I certainly wouldn't be making, you know, my own travel sickness tablets out of some belladonna. Don't have the skills to do that and I wouldn't want to chance it. So I suppose hemlock is a very popular one that people will think of when you say name a poisonous plant. All the parts of it are poisonous and generally hemlock is fatal. There isn't that many people that could consume it and, and recover from that. So it causes excruciating intestinal pain. And generally, before you would be able to get to the hospital, you, you would have died. There's, there's loads and loads. But then when you consider that rhubarb leaves, we all yeah. love a good rhubarb crumble. And but the know. leaves are highly toxic. I knew that when I was a little kid. I knew that. Yeah. Hemlock looks a little bit like, um, is it meadow sweet? It's got that kind of look to it. Yeah, so hemlock and um, giant hogweed look look very similar when they're growing near each other and they do grow quite close to each other in places as well. So it, it can be quite hard to, to identify. Meadowsweet's got a bit of a more fluffy white flower, but the shape of it, that sort of long stalk with the white umbrella-y flower on the top, mm -hmm. it's the same yeah. shape. Meadowsweet's just a little bit fluffier when you see them close together but they like the same sort of land yeah so they literally could grow next to each other one's got fantastic health properties the other one's going to kill you oh my god it just makes me scared to do it i'm just not educated enough <laughs> when i started foraging the guy that taught me said the easiest thing to do is to learn all of the poisonous plants so learn all of the poisonous plants off by heart because then if you see the plant and you don't recognise it, you know it's safe to eat. Ah, oh, that's good. Yeah. Because if you try and learn it the other way round, there are thousands of plants growing in the UK. And it's mm -hmm. very hard to remember all of them and what their properties are. 
Yeah. So if you know the ones that are going to kill you, you know to avoid those. So overwhelming. It like yeah. cross-reference like yeah. three times. Wasn't it? Um, Louise and I did a little foraging taster course thing over the summer and she was saying cross-reference yeah. like with three books before you even yeah. put anything in exactly. your gobble. <laughs> You know, because I mean, lots of people have got these plant apps on the phones and I've got one as well. And occasionally I'll chuck a random picture in that I know is a poisonous plant, but looks like something else. And it doesn't actually bring the poisonous plant up until about seven down the list. Oh, no. So, you know, for a lot of the plants, they are excellent, but there's always the odd stray that looks Mm -hmm. so similar to something else that it'll get through the net. So you really do need to have at least three really well-illustrated books. And if the book has got photographs, the best books have got photographs of the plant in all of the four seasons. Because what a plant looks like in spring is not what it's going to look like in summer or autumn or winter. So if you've only got a picture of it in spring, that's the only time I'd be picking it. Yeah, you no. know, so try and get your pictures where you can see what it's going to look like all year round. But yeah, it's it's great fun. There's lots to learn and there's there's lots to know. Such an understatement. <laughs> there's um, mass, masses, masses. I mean, if people are interested in going and seeing a real life array of poisonous plants all in one place that is really safe to go to, my suggestion is that you get yourself a ticket to Annick Castle, to the Poisonous Plant Garden. So those of you that don't know, Annick Castle is where Harry Potter was filmed. So you can drag the kids along. They'll love it because it's all Harry Potter and you can go and have a look at your Poisonous Plant Garden. It's all done very, very professionally and they instruct you about what you can and you can't do. So it is owned by the, well, originally by the, the Duchess of Northumberland owned it. And she became really good friends with the Medici family in Italy. They were absolutely fascinated by poisonous plants. They had their own poisonous plant garden. And when she went to visit, she thought, I just think this is brilliant and I want to learn so much more about it. So she already had a healing apothecary garden. So it was more sort of the healing properties of your witchy type herbs. But she became that engrossed in poisonous plants that that's what the garden turned into. And then years later, she actually went and visited a a medieval archaeological site in Scotland, which had been an old hospital. And they'd actually found soporific sponges. So they're the ones that had been soaked in your hembanes and your opiums and your hemlocks to be used as anaesthetics. And then that just instilled even more passion in her. And so that's how the, the poisonous plant garden sort of formed at Annick. But you you can go and look round it and it's all very safe. So Oh that's cool. Is that up north? Or is it yeah, down the, it is, down. yeah. It's up north. So it's just in the northeast. So from us, I think it's about two, two and a quarter hours from Leeds. It's well worth the visit and you can so you can actually see what all the plants look like. One of my students did ask me if they had a um they had a little shop that you, I know. Could buy, that you could buy stuff from, which I thought was a little bit bizarre. Maybe somebody she knows had upset her. I think that's like a meme, and it become a meme. <laughs> <laughs> does it? Does it have a gift shop? Oh, um, brilliant! Thank you very much. No, that you was are. Good. You are very welcome. There are some books if people are really interested. There are loads of books, but I will give you the names of some that are really good and helpful. So there is a book called The Poisonous Path Herbal 
and it is by somebody called Kobe Michael. And that is an excellent book to buy. And it's quite easy reading um, and it's not expensive. There is another book called um, The Vinificum and its undertitle is Magic, Witchcraft and the Poisonous Path, I think it's called. And it's written by a guy called Daniel Shulk. But it's quite expensive, so I think it costs about 250 quid. Oh, my God. That is expensive. Yeah, so it's an older style book. And then you've got things like Nicholas Culpepper's Herbal, which has been in print for hundreds of years and it just keeps getting updated. So that doesn't cover any witchcrafty bits, but it does cover hundreds and hundreds of plants and all the properties and what the poisonous bits are. There's a brand new little book come out called The Little Book of Mushrooms by a guy called um, Alex Dore. And so that's newly in print and that's fabulous. So if you're more into sort of your fungi rather than plants, um, that would be something that you, you could have a look at. And then another one that is a really good read is called The Seed Sisters. So it's S-I-S-T-A-S rather than sisters as in sister and brother. And it's and then its undertitle is The Poisonous Prescriptions. Tells you things about like why and how poisonous herbs and plants are used for like Parkinson's cures and stuff like that. So there's some of the, the really good ones. Um, that are out there but there's literally hundreds of plants hundreds of books on poisonous plants yeah there's obviously a lot of people trying to look up little uh, lotions and potions and concoctions for the <laughs> oh, people God. that have fallen out with what does it say what does it say looking for stuff to hex and all that so it's, it's a minefield of information swales i can tell you anyway you're running class soon aren't you on something of a simpler topic I am doing. So I've got a little mini Zoom class. It's two hours in in the evening. And that is looking at old fashioned herbs and their odd and strange witchy names. So what the plants actually are and what they were used for and why they were given these strange names. So things like Eye of Newt, what it actually is, Graveyard Dirt, what that is, all sorts of, of different things, you know, bat's blood, eye of Horus, all those sorts of things. So I do, I normally do that about three times a year and I've got that coming up in October. So it's on my website under courses if anybody's interested and it, it's eight quid a ticket. And then oh, you get, nice. You get a copy of all the slides afterwards oh, yeah. as well so that you've got something to go back to. And I, I wrote that about three years ago based on the fact that before lockdown, somebody actually came to my stand at a show and said, does it matter whether you get your graveyard dirt from a new grave or an old one? And I said, actually, isn't graveyard dirt? It's a plant. (laughs) (laughs) I bet loads of people will thought it it was actual dirt. I did for a long time. I thought it was actual dirt. You know, Hollywood's got a big part to play in that. Yep, exactly. And, you know, and even like, Shakespeare has paid, played a big part in it, in his his plays and stuff where, um, I'm not going to say the name of it because you're not supposed to, but you know the one I mean with the three witches in it. Oh, um, yeah. You know, so I can understand how people get confused because why is it called graveyard dirt if you're not actually taking the dirt from a grave? But it isn't. It's a plant. 
So it's much safer. You can go and pick that during the day. The police aren't going to chase you if you do it like they might do if they saw you with your little bucket and spade. (laughs) Digging up somebody's grave. Oh, my God. What what an image. Just there with your bucket. Like seaside. like Making graveyard dirt sandcastles. Yeah, with your cloak on and your pointy hat. Oh, my God. Like, what witches do? (laughs) What witches don't do? If you've enjoyed this episode, I reckon you'll love that little Zoom course. So I do recommend you go and check out the Wiccan Ladies website. Is it just thewiccanlady.com? .co.uk. .co.uk. There we go. Dead easy. Google, she'll come up. She's right there at the top as she was for me all them years back. Cool. Well, I think that's a wrap then. Perfect. It's been fabulous chatting with you. It's great. I love it. It's a proper moot loot. All these gems (laughs) of knowledge. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it. 